This is a recording of Muriel Spark, the Creme de la Creme, an event presented by the Edinburgh International Book Festival in association with publisher Berlin Limited and the Royal Lyceum Theatre, Edinburgh. The event was held at the Usher Hall in Edinburgh on the 31st of January 2018 to celebrate the centenary of Muriel Spark's birth. It is introduced by Nick Barley, director of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and hosted by Alan Taylor, editor of the Scottish Review of Books, and Rosemary Goring, literary editor of The Herald. The event was supported by Creative Scotland and recorded with the kind permission of all participants. Wow. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this historic evening at the Usher Hall. My name's Nick Barley, and I'm the director of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here tonight. When Jenny Niven, the head of literature at Creative Scotland, first suggested to me that we should have a 100th birthday party for Muriel Spark, obviously I agreed immediately, and I said, we'll book the Usher Hall. <laughs> then, this was about a year ago, and later my team and I thought, the Usher Hall? Are you serious? So we weren't sure, and when we first put tickets on sale, we only opened up, as you know, this lower area, and it sold out within hours. So we, then we opened up the middle tier there, and it sold out within a few days. And so we opened up the upper tier, hello up there, and that has now almost completely sold out, with the exception of a few seats with poor visibility. We have filled the Usher Hall tonight, and I'm so proud of that. One of Muriel Sparks' favorite quotes came from T.S. Eliot, who said, culture is something that must grow. You cannot build a tree, you can only plant it and care for it and wait for it to nurture in its due time. The fact that nearly 2,000 of you have come out tonight to celebrate the 100th birthday of Muriel Spark is a testament to the fact that Edinburgh has grown its own cultural life. During Muriel Spark's lifetime, culture has become something so important to us in this city, and we're the envy of the world for the culture that we have. And Muriel Spark, I think, is the epitome of that. Tonight, we celebrate her life and work, the life and work of one of this city's true cultural greats. And we do it in no small part thanks to Creative Scotland, who have championed Muriel Spark's centenary this year with events across Scotland. We are just one of many this year. Also, the players of the People's Postcode Lottery, who support the Edinburgh International Book Festival to do events all year round. Thank you for that. And Berlin Publishing, the Edinburgh-based publishers, who this year are republishing all 22 of Muriel Sparks' novels. Thank you in particular to Jan Rutherford for her hard work in making this evening work. And to the Lyceum Theatre, based just down the road, for working with us tonight to put on something very special, which you're about to see. So, to this event. The event lasts 90 minutes this evening, and after that there will be a book signing by Alan Taylor, uh, on the, chair, the table just in front here. So books are available in the bar. Go and buy a book, and then you can queue around the edge here to have books signed, I hope. And so now I'm delighted to introduce this evening's hosts. 
Rosemary Goring, literary editor of The Herald, who has also adapted A Far Cry from Kensington for BBC radio drama, and Alan Taylor, literary critic, friend of Muriel Spark, and the author of this extraordinary new memoir of his friendship with her, Appointment in Arezzo. So without further ado, please give a huge welcome to the creme de la creme. Well, um, I was struggling to come up with an eloquent word to describe this whole shebang, and I can't really do any better than jings. <laughs> um, you know, w when, when I was a, a teenager, I used to come to rock concerts here um, to hear Mark Bolin and Fleetwood Mac and all those great guys. And little did I think that 50 years later, here would I be standing on this stage for a night in celebration of Muriel Spark. By the way, they were meant to gasp at that. Um, <laughs> you, you, know, you should say, surely not 50, he's slip of the tongue. Um, the fact that you're all here tonight and the fact that we're having all these amazing events throughout 2018 um, has a certain irony to it. You might recall that Muriel, who I think is how we should refer to her tonight, Muriel famously said that when she left Edinburgh at the age of 19, she left a place that couldn't possibly understand her. Well, it would be wonderful to hear what she thinks of that tonight. We're going to have an incredible uh, evening. Uh, it's really a sampler of Muriel's work. Uh, excerpts from plays, poetry, essays, and of course the novels. And we've got uh, some wonderful guests to help us along. As Nick said, it's going to last 90 minutes. And uh, my uh, co-host here tonight is going to make sure it runs smoothly and that we run to time. So, Rosemary. Okay, so um, to begin, just a very sketchy bit of background. Muriel Camberg was born on the 1st of February, 1918. Her parents were Bertie and Sissy, and she had an elder brother, Philip. The family lived in a flat in Brunsfield, and it was over the Brunsfield links that Muriel would walk every day to school at James Gillespie's School for Girls. And I've no need to remind you that in the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, that school became the Marcia Blaine School for Girls. Well, and just around the corner from here, in Grindley Street, uh, at the flat at the far end of Grindley Street, on the first floor, was where Miss Christina Kay, the model for Miss Jean Brodie, was born and brought up and spent much of her adult life. And the first reading tonight is going to be from Muriel's autobiography, Curriculum Vitae, and the reader, the reader is Gabriel Quigley. Gabriel. I fell into Miss Kay's hands at the age of 11. It might well be said that she fell into my hands. Little did she know, little did I know, that she bore within her the seeds of the future Miss Brodie. In a sense, Miss Kay was nothing like Miss Brodie. In another sense, she was above and beyond her Brodie counterpart. If she could have met Miss Brodie, Miss Kay would have put the fictional character firmly in her place. 
And yet no pupil of Miss Kay's has failed to recognize her with joy and great nostalgia in the shape of Miss Jean Brodie in her prime. She entered my imagination immediately. I started to write about her even then. Her accounts of her travels were gripping, fantastic. Besides turning in my usual essays about how I spent my holidays, I wrote poems about how she had spent her various holidays in Rome, for example, or Egypt or Switzerland. I thought her experiences more interesting than mine, and she loved it. It was not that Miss Kay overacted. Indeed, she never acted at all. She was a devout Christian, deeply versed in the Bible. There could be no question of a love affair with the art master or a sex affair with the singing master, as in Miss Brodie's life. But children are quick to perceive possibilities in a remark, perhaps in some remote context, in a glance, a smile. No, Miss Kay was not literally Miss Brodie, but I think Miss Kay had it in her, unrealized, to be the character I invented. When I first saw the film of The Prime, my immediate reaction was that it was too brightly coloured for the true depiction of the Edinburgh scene. <laughs> so indeed it was. But I think Miss Kay would have felt very happy about the imposed bright colours. She loved colours. She taught us to be aware of them. She would never accept drab raincoats. Why make a wet day more dreary than it is? We should wear bright coats and carry blue umbrellas or green. In those days, umbrellas were universally black or brown. She said, I would like to see a grey coat and skirt for the spring girls worn with a citron beret. <laughs> One would wear a citron beret in Paris with a grey suit. We painted the primary, secondary and tertiary colours. I believe that Miss Kay, for her, colour came before drawing or form. To her, colour was form. Did Miss Kay have a sweetheart in her life? I think she did, long before our time. I would put her age at about 50 in my memory and looking at class photographs, I think that is about right. The two years I was in Miss Kay's class, the last classes in junior school were 1929 and 1930. She was of the generation of clever, academically trained women who had lost their sweethearts in the 1914-1918 war. There had been a terrible carnage. There were no men to go around. Until we ourselves grew up, there was a veritable generation of spinsters. At any rate, Miss Kay told us how wonderful it had been to waltz in those long, full skirts. I sense romance, sex. Muriel left school at the age of 17 
It's probable that our parents couldn't actually afford to send her to university, but it's actually equally probable that Muriel didn't want to go. She'd seen friends at school go on up to Edinburgh University, and it seemed to her that all they did was write S's on John Donne. And as Muriel pointed out, she could already do that. Yeah. So she had a succession of jobs in Edinburgh. She worked in a department store at Smalls um, as a, an assistant to the owner of the store, an elderly man, and uh, he indulged her because he allowed her to choose the next year's fashions and the colours that, uh, that would feature in the shop's wares. But uh, when she was 19, at a dance in Princess Street, in what I think is now the Royal Overseas League, she met a man called Sidney Oswald Spark, a teacher who she followed to Rhodesia and who she married there. The one thing she retained uh, from that marriage, apart from her son, Robin, was the surname. And she used to say, well, why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> well, The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie is really the quintessential Edinburgh novel. Uh, please welcome First Minister Nicola Sturgeon to read an extract from it. It is such a privilege to be here with you tonight to celebrate the genius that was Muriel Spark, one of Scotland's finest writers and one of our most iconic figures. Of course, Muriel Spark spent most of her life far away from Scotland, but the country of her birth undoubtedly shaped her. My formation is entirely Scottish, she once said. The centenary of her birth also coincides with the centenary of votes for women. A coincidence of history, yes, but one that seems apt. For the clever, talented, glamorous, feisty, strong-willed and independently minded Muriel Spark is, I think, an inspiration to women everywhere. It is her work, though, that she would want us to focus on. Like so many, I devoured the novels of Muriel Spark in my younger years. And having just recently started rereading them in order, I'm discovering all over again the sheer joy, entertainment, and it's fair to say, rigorous intellectual stimulation that they provide. It's hard, I think, to sum up the work of Spark. Multi-layered, complex, and yet somehow totally accessible. On one level, quirky stories and gripping mysteries that draw the reader in and transport us to a world that can seem much simpler than the one we inhabit today. And yet, she offers an exploration of moral and philosophical issues that leaves you thinking long, long after the last page. One of my favorites of her novels is The Driver's Seat, and even now, 30 years since I first read it, I'm not entirely sure I fully understand it. It still provides the curious mind with endless potential for interpretation as well as great enjoyment. It truly the mark of a literary phenomenon. Faith, often through the eyes of the convert, mortality, sanity and insanity, reality and illusion, these are just some of the themes that recur time and again throughout her work. Her novels, of course, are very much of their time. 
and yet also timeless and in so many cases still highly relevant to us today. Uh, I'm rereading Memento Mori just now, uh, which is a glorious reminder of her ability to be hilariously comical, uh, usually in a deadpan, dare I say it quite, Edinburgh way, and also deeply dark, often on the very same page. And I had one of those laugh out loud moments when I was reading it uh, late last night, as Godfrey is lamenting the inability of the police to apprehend the man who is terrorizing old folk with phone calls, reminding them that they must die. He exclaims, if it continues, I will be forced to write a letter to the Times. <laughs> Comic genius in a novel that is profound and truly timeless in its exploration of aging and dying. She was also highly topical. The Abyss of Crew, perhaps the best political novel I've ever read, was of course partly motivated by the Watergate scandal and published while that scandal still dominated the headlines. Up to the minute, topically at the time, and with surveillance and political intrigue as its core subject, still hugely relevant and resonant almost half a century later. Her characters literally burst onto the page fully formed. And as a result, indeed, one of the things I love, she calls in the reader's imagination to piece together their past lives and also, at least for those lucky enough to survive her pen, uh, their futures as well. And all of this created in prose that is truly lyrical in its beauty and craftsmanship. Reminding us that while she will always be most celebrated as a novelist, she was first and foremost a poet. Earlier this week, there was a, a quite wonderful piece about Muriel Spark in The Guardian, uh, written by one of our finest contemporary writers, Ali Smith. Since I can never ever hope to express anything better than Ali Smith, I thought I'd end with her words. I can't think of another novelist who unites the heart, the soul, and the intellect with quite such interrogatory merriment, or who's so, seen so clearly the 20th century for the industrial spinner of fictions it became, then seen our lives across and after that century with such fused lyricism, liberation, merciless understanding, and forbearance. Muriel Spark, truly the creme de la creme. Which leads me, rather nicely, does it not, to this reading from what is undoubtedly her most celebrated work. If anyone comes along, said Miss Brodie, in the course of the following lesson, remember that it is the hour for English grammar. Meantime, I will tell you a little of my life when I was younger than I am now, though six years older than the man himself. She leaned against the elm. It was one of the last autumn days when the leaves were falling in little gusts. They fell on the children who were thankful for this excuse to wriggle and for the allowable movements in brushing the leaves from their hair and legs. Seasons of mists and mellow fruitfulness. I was engaged to a young man at the beginning of the war, but he fell on Flanders Field, said Miss Brodie. Are you thinking, Sandy, of doing a day's washing? No, Miss Brodie, because you have got your sleeves rolled up. I won't have to do with girls who roll up the sleeves of their blouses, however fine the weather. Roll them down at once, we are civilized beings. 
He fell the week before armistice was declared. He fell like an autumn leaf, although he was only 22 years of age. When we go indoors, we shall look on the map at Flanders and the spot where my lover was laid before you were born. He was poor. He came from Ayrshire, a countryman, but a hard-working and clever scholar. He said when he asked me to marry him, we shall have to drink water and walk slow. That was Hugh's country way of expressing that we would live quietly. We shall drink water and walk slow. What does that saying signify, Rose? That you would live quietly, Miss Brodie, said Rose Stanley, who six years later had a great reputation for sex. <laughs> the story of Miss Brodie's failed fiancé was well in its way when the headmistress, Miss Mackay, was seen to approach across the lawn. Tears had already started to drop from Sandy's little pig-like eyes. And Sandy's tears now affected her friend Jenny, later famous in the school for her beauty, who gave a sob and groped up the leg of her knickers for her handkerchief. <laughs> Hugh was killed, said Miss Brodie, a week before the armistice. After that, there was a general election and people were saying, hang the Kaiser. Hugh was one of the flowers of the forest lying in his grave. Rose Stanley had now begun to weep. Sandy slid, slid her wet eyes sideways, watching the advance of Miss Mackay, head and shoulders forward across the lawn. I am come to see you and I have to be off, she said. What are you little girls crying for? They are moved by a story I have been telling them. We are having a history lesson, said Miss Brodie, catching a falling leaf neatly in her hand as she spoke. Crying over a story at 10 years of age, said Miss Mackay to the girls who had stragglingly risen from the benches, still dazed with Hugh the warrior. I'm only come to see you and I must be off. Well, girls, the new term has begun. I hope you all had a splendid summer holiday and I look forward to seeing your splendid essays and how you spent them. You shouldn't be crying over history at the age of 10, my word. You did well said Miss Brodie to the class when Miss Mackay had gone, not to answer the question put to you. <laughs> it, is, it is well when in difficulties to say never a word, neither black nor white. Speech is silver, but silence is golden. Mary, are you listening? What was I saying? Mary McGregor, lumpy with merely two eyes, a nose and a mouth like a snowman, who was later famous for being stupid and always to blame, and who at the age of 23 lost her life in a hotel fire, ventured golden. What did I say was golden? Mary cast her eyes around her and up above. Sandy whispered, the falling leaves. The falling leaves, said Mary. Plainly, said Miss Brodie, you were not listening to me. If only you small girls would listen to me, I would make of you the creme de la creme. Decent piece of writing, actually, and, and very well read. Uh, um, uh, Rosemary earlier used the word quintessential, and we have uh, two quintessential 
contemporary Edinburgh writers with us tonight. So please welcome the first of them, Alexander McCall Smith. Writers, writers have influences and are always asked about them as to who influenced them. Uh, I certainly have my influences, as, as, as all writers do. Uh, I, in particular, was influenced by Auden and uh, R.K. Narayan, but also by Muriel Spark. And uh, I found in writing my Edinburgh novels uh, that it's, it's been uh, quite extraordinary the extent which Muriel Spark seems to be talking to me as I, I write these books. And uh, I find that whenever I write um, uh, a female character in, in those books, uh, somehow uh, they become Jean Brodie. And uh, this has been problematic. When I started the Isabel Dalhousie series, um, my American readers said, uh, she's awfully disapproving. She's rather, you know, she's, she's very unpleasant. And I, I really had to say, well, you know, it's Edinburgh that I'm writing, <laughs> writing about. And so what I did in those, in those novels was I, I actually really had to moderate her character because Isabel was very Jane Brodie to begin with. And I had to put in all sorts of touchy-feely uh, things which Jane Brodie wouldn't have approved of uh, in order to uh, get, get across the impression that this was, was, a, was a very uh, attractive character, as indeed Jane Brodie was. What I've done this evening is, is write a poem especially for this occasion, uh, which is called Remember Muriel Spark. It's a brief poem. I think whenever one reads a poem, you have to tell people that in advance um, <laughs> so that they know that they're not in for the long haul. Uh, so it is quite brief. Uh, called, as I said, Remember um, Muriel Spark, and there are five, I think, four or five parts to it. So one. As anniversaries go, 20 years allows for modest satisfaction. So many of us manage two decades that they usually pass unnoticed, unremarked upon by all but our closest friends and those who are prepared to forgive us most things, if not everything. 50 years is occasion, though, for respectful reassessment. Out of the territory of base metal, 50 basks puts up feet and enjoys the sun, does nothing, looks good, glances back a bit, smiles, remembers. 100, though, centennial celebration, centennial cherishing, is the key in which the conversation proceeds. Achieving the century puts one in a special category, whether one is a cricketer, a novelist, or just a person, that last status being so undemanding but ultimately all that matters. You saw so much. You saw the things we knew were there but could not quite locate nor put in words as good as expertly wrought as yours. You tripped us up when we, the unprepared, were not being careful enough. You laid out unexpected things, remarks revealing sentiments other than those we expected or matters made more complicated by the intrusion of human deviousness or delicious human unpredictability. Ha, we said, and then ha again. What was your parish? Where the center of your universe? Everywhere, really, 
but at heart and always, you were a citizen of Edinburgh, not just an inhabitant, but a citizen, and there is a difference. This city imbued you with its essence, its spikiness. Look at its architecture, all stone and spikes. The soul of such a city is not a rounded, comfortable thing. It is sharp and ready to see the spiky side of things. You embodied that so effortlessly. The characters you created may have lived in many different places, but they all had Edinburgh as their beginning, their nascence. You will never leave us now. Every so often on a street, we catch the Morningside tone, half forgotten, but still there, vaguely disapproving in its elongated vowels, some remark that puts 21st century anodyne undifferentiated Scotland in its place. You did that so well. Mutatis mutandis, in the temporal sense, as you would undoubtedly say. Those of slender means, those innocent schoolgirls made of yearning and misinformation, those strange inhabitants of London's odd geography, swearing nuns, the blatantly manipulative, the left behind, the searchers. Your parish was a broad one, but home here, this city, claims you as its own, its beloved daughter, its sparkling muse, embraces you in gratitude, remembers you. returned from her disastrous time in Rhodesia and settled in wartime London. Having sent her son to be with her parents in Edinburgh, she set about trying to make a living as a single woman. She had a variety of jobs in a publishing house, um, a very taxing job at the Poetry Society where she made quite a lot of enemies as she tried to revolutionize it. And it's a period she brilliantly evoked in several of her novels and perhaps for me most favorably in The Girls of Slender Means. So, to read from the girls of Slender Means, please welcome Moyo Akandi. Long ago, in 1945, all the nice people in England were poor, allowing for exceptions. The streets of the cities were lined with buildings in bad repair or in no repair at all. Bomb sites piled with stony rubble, houses like giant teeth in which decay had been drilled out, leaving only a cavity. Some bomb-ripped buildings looked like the ruins of ancient castles until, at a closer view, the wallpapers of various quite normal rooms would be visible. Room above room, exposed as on a stage with one wall missing. Sometimes a lavatory chain would dangle over nothing from a fourth or fifth floor ceiling. Most of all the staircases survived like a new art form leading up and up to an unspecified destination that made unusual demands on the mind's eye. All the nice people were poor, at least that was a general axiom. The best of the rich being poor in spirit. There was absolutely no point in feeling depressed about the scene. It would have been like feeling depressed about the Grand Canyon or some event of the earth outside everybody's scope. 
People continued to exchange assurances of depressed feelings about the weather or the news, or the Albert Memorial, which had not been hit, not even shaken by any bomb from first to last. The May of Tech Club stood obliquely opposite the site of the memorial, in one of a row of tall houses which had endured but barely. Some bombs had dropped nearby and in a few back gardens leaving the buildings cracked on the outside and shakily hinged within, but habitable for the time being. The shattered windows had been replaced with new glass rattling in loose frames. More recently, the bituminous blackout paint had been removed from landing and bathroom windows. Windows were important in that year of final reckoning. They told at a glance whether a house was inhabited or not, and in the course of the past years, they had accumulated much meaning, having been the main danger zone between domestic life and the war going on outside. Everyone had said when the sirens sounded, mind the windows, keep away from the windows, watch out for the glass. The May of Tech Club had been three times window shattered since 1940, but never directly hit. There, the windows of the upper bedrooms overlooked the dip and rise of treetops in Kensington Gardens across the street with the Albert Memorial to be seen by means of a slight craning and twist of the neck. These upper bedrooms looked down on the opposite pavement on the park side of the street and on the tiny people who moved along in neat-looking singles and couples pushing little prams loaded with pin-headed babies and provisions or carrying little dots of shopping bags. Everyone carried a shopping bag in case they should be lucky enough to pass a shop that had a sudden stock of something off their rations. From the lower floor dormitories, the people in the street looked larger and the paths of the park were visible. All the nice people were poor and few were nicer as nice people come than these girls at Kensington who glanced out over the windows in the early mornings to see what the day looked like or gazed out on the green summer evenings, as if reflecting on the months ahead, on love and the relations of love. Their eyes gave out an eager, spirited light that resembled near genius, but was youth merely. The first of the rules of the Constitution, drawn up at some remote and innocent Edwardian date, still applied more or less to them. The May of Tech Club exists for the pecuniary convenience and social protection of ladies of slender means below the age of 30 years, who are obliged to decide apart from their families in order to follow an occupation in London. As they realised themselves in varying degrees, few people alive at the time were more delightful more ingenious, more movingly lovely, and, as it might happen, more savage than the girls of slender means. Thank you, Moya. Now, now a treat, another treat. Um, please welcome David Gregg from the Royal Lyceum Company, who's going to introduce what is really a kind of sampler, taster of Doctors of Philosophy, Muriel's only play. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Doctors of Philosophy uh, premiered in 1963 at the Arts Club 
in London, and as far as we know, it has not been performed in Britain since then, although there was a successful revival, I found out, in Sweden, directed by Ingmar Bergman. Uh, so big shoes for us to follow. Um, uh, we've spent a couple of days working on the play, and we found an extraordinary piece of work, um, uh, uh, strange and delightful and playing with the form of theatre itself. We felt we couldn't give a flavour of it to you by simply doing one extract, so instead we came up with the idea of doing a sort of trailer for it, um, a sort of a teaser. So um, we'll read the play. We will begin at the beginning, but every time we sort of jump cut forward, you're going to hear this sound. So you'll know we've jumped forward, and uh, we hope you'll give you a, a taste of it. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we present uh, Doctors of Philosophy by Muriel Spark. It is a summer night. Charlie Delfont is writing at a desk. His wife, Catherine, enters from the terrace through French windows. Where's Leonora? She's gone to bed. I wanted her to come and look at the canal. Well, she's gone to bed. Thought she might like to look at the water, as it isn't term time. I mean, I quite see that during term time, a thing like the canal would be an idea to Leonora. It would be a geographical and historical and sociological idea. <laughs> but during vacation, I do think Leonora ought to take a look at reality. Are you listening, Charlie? Yes, Catherine. What was I saying? Leonora ought to take a look at reality. During the vacation? In the vacation. That's all I ask. I quite see that when she's in college, she can't go and look at a thing without feeling compelled to go and look it up. And consequently, she doesn't look at things at all. But in the holidays, you know, I feel she ought to take more interest in life. The leopard can't change its spots. Leonora isn't a leopard. That's my point. You know, human beings can change their spots. That's my point. Do you realise, Charlie, that all last term I didn't have a minute to look at the stars? Off to school in the morning, back in the afternoon to see what was going on in the house, homework in the evening. Honestly, I haven't looked at the stars. Well, you could look at the stars in the holidays and in the term as well, if you want. I am not giving up my job. <laughs> I'm out of pocket with your job. I've always been out of pocket with your jobs. Extra help in the house, extra cigarettes, extra drink to cheer you up. Taxi fares on the days when you have a row with the head, extra clothes to maintain your authority over the boys, extra... extra ink in my fountain pen. Oh, shoe leather. You've forgotten shoe leather. Extra shoe leather. <laughs> I'm out of pocket. Well, if you get your professorship, you'll be able to afford my luxurious job in a grammar school. I have a mind as well as you and Leonora, Charlie. You can give free lectures to the Mother's Union. It would be cheaper in the long run. I can't count on any new appointment. When will you know? Oh, within a week or two. It's very doubtful. Don't start buying anything. Just <laughs> go on looking at the stars and the canal. I pay for them with the rates. Were you thinking of coming to bed? Or is your time too expensive? 
I've got to finish this tonight. Later the same evening, Charlie is still at his desk. Leonora, in a dressing gown, enters and stands behind Charlie. What's the matter, Catherine? It isn't Catherine. Oh, it's you, Leonora. Charlie, give me a child. What? A child. I want a child. Which child? What? I wish to conceive a child. Leonora, are you feeling all right? No, because I want a child. Before it's too late, I want... Leonora, you... you've been overworking. <laughs> the next morning... It is you, Charlie, who've been overworking. I know what it is. You sit there at night and you... I am not the imaginative type, Catherine. You're always saying so. Look, I sat here, she stood there... Well, then why didn't you call me then? Why didn't you wake me up? You're always waking me up to discuss something or other. Why didn't you I wake me up? I was stunned. I was embarrassed. <laughs> I just lay awake and thought about it. I think it was a dream. I, I mean to say, you know, when you think of Leonora... You know, when you just think of Leonora... I mean to say, Charlie, I mean, I can't think of Leonora standing here in a nightdress a and A dressing saying, gown, to be fair. I know my own cousin, Charlie. We grew up together. Leonora's not that type. She's a born virgin. That's the dangerous type. Well, you never thought she was dangerous before. Well, that makes her more dangerous now. Look, no one would believe that a university teacher like Leonora... That makes her more dangerous than ever. Remember Sarah Desmond. Who? Senior lecturer in comparative religions, the author of The Life Force. Life Force. She was discovered in the bath with a wine waiter in a Folkestone hotel. <laughs> it was hushed up, but she had to resign. And what's more, they were both naked. Leonora doesn't teach the life force. Greek is a very different thing from the life force. Greek is an old sound subject. Comes to the same thing in a woman scholar. Once they break out, they break out. <laughs> I have got as good a degree as Leonora has and I don't go round inviting men to give me a child. Well, you've got a daughter of sorts and you've got a good husband. When will Leonora be back from her walk? Well, she's usually back by half past ten. Where are you going? You mustn't leave me alone with her. Mrs S comes in with a cardboard box from which she lifts various garments. What do you want to throw this vest away for? We've finished with it, Mrs S. You can keep it if you like. I couldn't face her. Well, Charlie, neither can I, in a way. A good vest? What's wrong with it? It got shrunk in the laundry. Oh. Well, it would come in for Daphne. She's filling out. She doesn't wear vests. Charlie, you are a rat. Yes, she does. She wears a vest in the winter when she isn't going out with a boy. Not her father's vests. Charlie, Charlie, you are not going to your club, are you? Oh, yes, I am. I'm getting out of this until you've sorted things out. That'll do nicely for Maisie's husband to be. It's his build, but of course he's young. But on the other hand, of course he's fussy, so he might decline. She says he can't have children. I say, how does he know if he hasn't had a bash at it? <laughs> he must have done. She says the doctors can tell. <laughs> well, you're damn lucky then, I said in one sense. But you watch out for him in the psychological sense. 
I was, it was going to be my birthday today, Charlie. It was your birthday last week. Charlie was out of pocket over it, unless my ears deceive me. A rat. I was saving up my birthday for Daphne coming home. I'll ring you after lunch. Ask her if she's ever walked in her sleep before. Charlie goes out. If they walk in their sleep, they don't talk in their sleep. She walked and she talked as far as I've made it my business to gather. Oh, it's nerve-wracking, Mrs. D, as one scholar to another. Charlie's not cut out for it. Now take a seat, rest yourself. Mrs. S, can you put all these things somewhere out of the way? Daphne will be home before lunch and Mrs. Wood will be here after lunch. Oh, Annie Wood's coming, is she? Oh, you didn't tell me Annie was coming. Well, that puts a different complexion on things, doesn't it? That just about puts the tin hat on it, doesn't it? What do you want to invite Annie for? Oh, she rang and invited herself last night. Mrs S, well, you have to keep an eye on Charlie. Need I elaborate on the subject? I am not in a sociable mood this morning. Mrs S, if you don't mind putting... Have a fag. <laughs> now, Annie hasn't got her PhD like you and Leonora, has she? That's enough for me. Charlie wants watching with women that haven't got their PhD. <laughs> they go to his head. You made a mistake, Mrs. D, getting your PhD as a girl and then getting married to another PhD. It's like what they do unnatural amongst families. The appropriate term escapes me. Incest. Yes. <laughs> it's shocking. And to put the lid on it, you send young Daphne away to get done. I wouldn't trust an 11 plus, never mind a PhD. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Mrs. Good morning, S. Leonora. Good morning, Leonora. Leonora, were you disturbed by anything at 10 past one this morning? I mean, you know, did you get up for any reason? No. Why? Charlie fell asleep at his desk. He had a, a peculiar dream. A, a dream. What makes you think I would be disturbed by Charlie's dreams? Did he call out? Uh, no, no, he didn't. That's what I can't make out because you entered into his dream. I'm not responsible for Charlie's dreams. Well, he was accosted. I thought perhaps it might not have been a dream, but, you know, I see now that it was a dream. I, I apologise. I accept your apology. It seems odd that you should accept an apology for an offence of which you don't know the nature or the details. I can imagine the nature and the details. Well, that must console you in the absence of reality. <laughs> Catherine... Do you think I've never had an opportunity to sleep with a man? Well, not for a long time. Why do you think so? Well, because of your manner and expression. Well, you're in no position to judge on that point. Well, obviously, my manner and expression would be very different if I were about to sleep with a man from what they are sitting here drinking warmed-up coffee with you. A woman of opportunities wears a certain manner and expression all the time. <sighs> Leonora... I don't say you look your age. It's just the manner. I'm not and old enough yet to look my age. I could still bear a child. I see. If I should wish to. And you are going to need more than the wish. I'm speaking 
Theoretically. And so am I, because you would need the man or a test tube if you didn't want to change your manner and expression. <laughs> I think you're absolutely vile. How long's Leonora going to stop for? Oh, I'm leaving right away, Mrs S. No, Leonora, you're not leaving right away. I'm upset. Well, let me know when you've worked it out, because I need the numbers for lunch. You mustn't leave, Leonora. I, I apologise. I reject your apology. Did you come down here in the night and ask Charlie to give you a child? No! He says you did. But you must have had a dream. It's very sensational. I crave to hear more. Leonora, sometimes you bring out the very worst in me. I think you must be right. When you come up to visit me in college, you have a hankering look. I feel sorry for you at those times. I think perhaps it stabs you the knowledge that you had it in you to become a distinguished scholar and have become the mother of an average student and the wife of a second-class scholar. You didn't feel sorry for me. Charlie is one of the best economists in the country. That doesn't prove him to be a first-class one. <laughs> you know, your standards were always too high, Leonora. Reality forces one to lower one's standards. In your remote life, you know nothing of reality. I think you hanker after my remote life. I think you desire a form of reality where your standards can be high without discomfort. Well, I might return to scholarship one day. After all these years. A scholar needs continuity, Catherine. I haven't been idle for all these years. I can pick up the threads if I should wish. You need more than the wish. You need the capacity. And what makes you think I haven't got the capacity? Your manner and expression. <laughs> if I sat down to study a subject, Leonora, I would have a studious look. Naturally, I don't look the scholar when I'm running the house, running Charlie, and correcting the fourth form homework. A woman of intellectual capacity has a certain manner and expression all the time. They're the manner and expression of detachment, and you can't pick them up overnight. I wouldn't want to pick them up at all. I like to please men. Do you think it pleases a man when he looks into a woman's eyes and sees a reflection of the British Museum reading room? I don't envy you, your expression and your manner. Oh, I think you do. Sometimes you look at me like a jealous woman. Well, that's a curious observation, considering you're so detached. In fact, I only want to know what makes you tick when I look at you. What conclusion have you reached? That you're in love with something without needing it to love you back. That's how you look and act. But sometimes it's terrifying. And sometimes fascinating. Yes. Of course, I'm attached to you. Don't you get tired of practicing detachment? Well, I admit, sometimes I get tired of being treated as a scholar and a gentleman. You ought to have got married, Leonora, only for the pleasure of pleasing a man. You know, hundreds of women academics are married these days. They teach in universities, run their homes, have babies, write books and feed their husbands. I don't know how they do it all. I know how they do it all. How? Badly. <coughs> <coughs> I shouldn't have married Charlie. In some ways it was unfair to Charlie. I should have married a stockbroker. I should have married a bank manager or a butcher or a baker. I mean, I had to have my sex and my child. 
but I should have married someone who couldn't eat up my brain, my mind. I should have married a, an electrician, a, a plumber. You know, I should have married a hulking great lorry driver. Enter Daphne followed by a hulking great lorry driver. <laughs> Hello, Mother. I got a lift on a lorry. I've asked the driver in for a cup of tea. Oh. Let me introduce. What's your name? Just call me Charlie. We're all called Charlie. Mother, Leonora, this is Charlie. Where's Mrs S? You want a cup of tea, don't we, Charlie? Lot of books you've got. Perhaps Charlie would be more comfortable in the kitchen with Mrs S. The tea is brewing all day long. Certainly not. Sit down, Charlie. I'm very grateful to Charlie. He saved me a train journey, not to mention the fair, and giving me a most amusing morning. Charlie, do tell that story about the professor's wife you gave a lift to who made a pass at you. I'll go and get you some of Mrs S's tea. Does anyone else want some? The same afternoon. An enormous scene, and just because I gave her a nightdress for her birthday, it cost me 36 and 7. She gave it away to Mrs S. She'll have to see a psychiatrist. You just mind your own business and leave your mother's neurosis alone. She's had it as long as I've known her, and it's good. if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. It's a damned ridiculous present in any case to bring home to your mother a nightdress. It's a perfectly normal present for a normal woman. Yes, but I'm talking about your mother. And remember, your grant doesn't extend to giving birthday presents at the price of 37 and 6. It's got to come out of my pocket, that 37 and 6. If you'd got her a book, it would have been 18 and 6 at the most, less the 33 and a third percent discount through the trade. If you'd come to me, I could have got you an interesting book for your mother for 12 and fourpence, plus postage and packing, tenpence at the outside, instead of which, what do you do? You sail into some exclusive shop and order a nightdress at 37 and 6. If you'd got your mother a book, on the other hand, you would have saved me close to 25 shillings and your mother a fit. And when you consider the question that the book could have been set off against tax. I wish I had normal parents. I didn't have normal parents. Why should you have normal parents? My father was a Tory and my mother believed in God. I couldn't bring my friends home. Your parents sound marvellous to me. The same afternoon, Leonora and Charlie are both reading newspapers. A car draws up outside. That's probably Annie. Oh, no, it isn't Annie. It's Daphne's young man. Daphne's boyfriend. Charlie's his name. They're all called Charlie. If she marries him, I'm going to insist on being called Charles to avoid disappointment <laughs> or confusion. Damn fool if she marries him. He's empty. Can't open his mouth. He must be empty or he wouldn't want to marry her. If she wasn't such a fool, she would see that. Oh, someone started the crossword. Charlie. Oh? Give me a child. <laughs> I wish to conceive a child. Look, Leonora, <laughs> just sit over here quietly. <laughs> Everything's going to be all right. It's just... Before it's too late. Honestly, it's a delightful surprise. Charlie, guess what Charlie bought me for my birthday? A book. A copy of Yeats' collected poems. Sorry about the wrong edition, not my subject. Oh, I prefer this edition. Maybe a bottle of scent would have been better, or even a nightdress. Oh, that, that would have torn it, young Charlie. 
Mrs. D has a mind. You can't dab a bit of scent on a mind, but you can dab poetry on it. Stands to reason. May I present Mrs. Annie Wood, non-PhD. Do, do you know there was a marvellous lorry driver outside when I drove up? He helped me in with my luggage. Isn't he big? Oh, he said I could call him Charlie. That's my lorry driver. Well, I think it good that young persons should learn to share. Daphne. Charles, Catherine, Leonora, heavenly to see you looking so sane and steady and solid <laughs> after the mad, crazy world I live in. I always boast about my learned cousins. I tell, I tell all my friends, I say, they are such doctors of philosophy, every one of them. <laughs> they live such dignified lives, my dears. They have stately conversations with each other. They never have to take pep-up pills or keep calm pills like me, philosophers. That's what they are. <laughs> it's perfectly true, my dears. You have philosophical hearts. That's why it's so peaceful to come amongst you. Who is this adorable-looking young man? Daphne's young friend, Charlie Weston. Charlie is a nuclear physicist, Annie. He's doing secret work. Really? Tell me all about it. <laughs> Mrs S with an electric polisher. The stage is empty and without <laughs> scenery except for various pulleys and switches to adjust stage scenery and lighting, but with various coloured lights upon it. Leonora sits on the stage with a tape recorder. She presses play. Charlie, give me a child. I want a child. Leonora, please. Charlie, before it's too late. Give me a child. Just sit down for a moment, Leonora. You're not well. <laughs> that is a recording of a conversation between me and my cousin's husband. What do you make of it, Mrs. S? Very revealing. <laughs> now get up off the floor. You'll catch a cold from it. Mrs. S switches on the polisher, which makes a humming sound and polishes the floor of the stage with it. Mrs. S, have you ever had a nervous breakdown? Oh, yes. <laughs> I shall never forget it. I had it on a Tuesday afternoon in March four years ago <laughs> when Mrs. D packed her bags to leave Charlie, but Charlie failed to return at the anticipated hour to be left. <laughs> Suspense held us both in its clammy clutch. We waited, gaunt, unspeaking, resolute in the front hall where the shadows gathered round us in fraught mockery. Outside a car slid to a halt like a homing egret at a swift standstill. Footsteps passed and faded relentlessly on the guesswork of another street. Silence. Fate. Footsteps again. Still no Charlie. I shall never forget it. Now, would you get up off the floor, Leonora? I've got to polish up. Wait a minute. The wall. The room. The furniture. The, the bookcases. The French windows. Where have they gone? What's happened? 
I told you, Leonora, I'm getting the place ready. Now have patience. I've got to work in my own time space. Mrs. S, I'm frightened. Would you mind putting this tape recorder back in the broom cupboard? I just, I can't bear the sight of it. Are you interested in the nature of reality, Leonora? Or are you too frightened to know the truth? I'm interested. Well, there isn't any broom cupboard. <laughs> Dramatic revelation. <laughs> well, I got the tape recorder out of the broom cupboard this morning. You did, and you didn't. Let's face it. The broom cupboard is a pure idea somewhere behind the scenes. There's a lot goes on behind the scenes in this house that's all pure idea. It's very alarming at first, but then it becomes interesting. <laughs> Enter Charlie, the lorry driver, carrying a large piece of scenery. The same afternoon, <clears throat> we have learned that Daphne is pregnant and has developed a craving for cucumbers. She'll have to leave home immediately. Charlie, how can I think of the practical side of things if you only talk? It's my duty to talk. I can't afford to feed another mouth. The house is full of mouths to feed. <laughs> she'll have to leave immediately. The baby will not be born immediately. But she'll soon be eating for two. She's eating cucumber salad almost exclusively. I can't afford to provide special diets. <laughs> Take a drink if you can't face the facts. I can't afford a drink. I've wasted a fortune on the girl's education and she's gone and spent it on fornication and cucumbers. <laughs> She'll have to pack her bags and... She's got nowhere to go. Shut up, Charlie. She'll have to go to a home for fallen women. <laughs> I'm not going to have any infants in this house at my age. Nappies on the line. I've had quite enough of your relations, Catherine, and I don't want any more in the house. She's arranging to get married as soon as possible, she says. In fact, that was all I could get out of her. Well, she can't have a wedding out of my pocket, if that's what she means. If she wants a wedding, let him pay for the wedding. Well, you didn't pay for our wedding. I wasn't to blame for our wedding. <laughs> He's got himself to blame for his. Sorry, my salary does not run to champagne. They'd better get married quietly. Hush it up. And I paid for our honeymoon. Don't forget that. I was well out of pocket over the honeymoon. <laughs> Could you afford to give me a gin and lime? It's a bit early to start. Do you mean to tell me she actually wants to marry that fellow? Well, she'll have to. What do you mean she'll have to? You can't force an innocent young girl to marry a man not of her own choice just because she was taken in by his clever, slick talk. I know that sort of swine. I've seen them at work, my dear woman. I can, I can assure you. Well, she could have an operation. If she has any illegal operations, out of my house she goes. It might kill her. Can't afford to have police inquiries. <laughs> Out she goes with her abortions and expensive funerals. <clears throat> if you would only keep calm about this, Catherine, you wouldn't panic. You wouldn't be advocating suicidal solutions like abortions and marriage. After all, she's your daughter. I advocate nothing. It's her business. I think she's very fortunate in the circumstances. Very lucky indeed. <sighs> Poor Daphne. The same afternoon, Daphne's boyfriend, young Charlie, is with Catherine. A great deal has occurred. Annie looks nice. Nicer than Daphne. Daphne's different. 
Daphne appears at the French windows with the tape recorder. She silently places it on the table, presses record and withdraws unobserved. Annie is attractive. I like the red dress. You have simple tastes, Charlie. Men whose work has to do with abstractions have simple tastes. Don't you think? I won't discuss my work. I don't see that there will be anything at all to discuss if Daphne refuses to marry you. She will have to marry me for the sake of the child. That's a grim view of things, I must say. It's grim that she doesn't love me enough to marry me. She didn't mind going to bed with a nuclear physicist. Daphne is a very complicated girl for a man who has simple tastes in women. Complicated women attract men of simple tastes. <laughs> Do they now? Do you really want to marry my complicated daughter? Yes. And are you feeling very miserable because she said she won't marry you? Not at the moment. Why not at the moment? Because I like being flirted with by her complicated mother. Charlie, you have a very unexpected cast of mind. It's a simple mind. If you go on talking on this subject, naturally I shall make love to you. What subject? The relative attractions of women. I speak in the academic sense. I don't listen in the academic sense. He kisses her passionately. Women are women to me. No ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and if you'd like to know what happens next... <laughs> ..you'll have to come and see the play. <laughs> Wasn't that wonderful? And uh, no expense spared on props, costumes, scenery, you name it. We, we threw money at it, actually. Um, our next guest uh, goes under that cliche, needs no introduction. Um, it is Ian Rankin, uh, of course. Um, I first met Ian, how many years ago, Ian? 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, we used to occasionally... <laughs> We used occasionally to be uh, lunching in the same place in Victoria Street. Remember the Laird's Larder? Oh, we could reminisce about that all night. I mean, it's wonderful lentil soup. Anyway, um, hearing people, uh, hearing the Lyceum Company uh, do the play and the talk of PhDs, it must have sent a shiver through you, did it? Um, because at that time when I first knew Ian, he was writing a PhD on one Muriel Spark, and the academic world is still waiting for that play to <laughs> arrive. Peter. Um, any case, we'll draw a veil over that. Um, he, he took the grant and he wrote other books. Um, Ian is going to read from uh, a very famous essay Muriel wrote called What Images Return. She wrote it while she was in the North British Hotel waiting for her father to die in 1962. Ian Rankin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. Um, yeah, it's true. Um, Doctors of Philosophy just sent a shiver through me because um, 
I graduated from the University of Edinburgh in 1982, went out into the cold, hard world of commerce and didn't like it much. And so I returned to the university and asked the lecturer if I might be accepted back to do a PhD. And um, he said, well, there's not much on Muriel Spark. And I went, who, who, who's Muriel Spark? Um, and he said, Miss Jean Brodie. I went, oh, yeah, I saw the film. It had some nudity in it, didn't it? And he, and, um, he said, well, yeah, she's written 15, 16, 17 other books. Um, go away and read some and do a proposal, which I duly did. And thanks to the um, generosity of the taxpayer, I was accepted back to the University of Edinburgh on three years grant to do a PhD. Very soon after that, I realized, I said, well, I said to myself, what would Muriel Spark want? <laughs> would she want me to write a PhD that would sit in the university library um, read by nobody? Or would she want me to use these three years of taxpayer-funded time to try and become a writer myself? Now, I didn't know her, so I just answered for her. And wrote three novels in three years, never finished a PhD, but the third novel was the first of the Rebus novels. And by then I decided that what I was going to spend my life doing was writing about Edinburgh. No matter where I happened to be in the world, I would be writing about Edinburgh, that would be my subject which brings us very nicely onto what images return. Edinburgh is the place that I, a constitutional exile, am essentially exiled from. I spent the first 18 years of my life during the 1920s and 1930s there. It was Edinburgh that bred within me the conditions of exiledom. And what have I been doing since then but moving from exile to exile? It has ceased to be a fate it has become a calling. My frequent visits to Edinburgh for a few weeks at a time throughout the years have been the visits of an exile in heart and mind, cautious, affectionate, critical. It is a place where I could not hope to be understood. The only sons and daughters of Edinburgh with whom I find a common understanding are exiles like myself. By exiles, I do not mean Edinburgh-born members of Caledonian societies. I do not consort in fellowship with the Edinburgh natives abroad merely on the Edinburgh basis. It is precisely the Caledonian society aspect of Edinburgh which cannot accommodate me as an adult person. Nevertheless, it is the place where I was first understood. James Gillespie's girls' school, set in solid state among green meadows, showed an energetic faith in my literary life. I was the school's poet and dreamer. With appropriate perquisites and concessions, I took this for granted and have never since quite accustomed myself to the world's indifference to art and the process of art and to the special needs of the artist. I have started the preceding paragraph with the word nevertheless, and I'm reminded how my whole education in and out of school seemed even then to pivot around this word. I was aware of its frequent use. My teachers used it a great deal. All grades of society constructed sentences bridged by nevertheless. It would need a scientific study to ascertain whether the word was truly employed more frequently in Edinburgh at the time than anywhere else. It is my own instinct to associate the word as the core of a thought pattern with Edinburgh particularly. I can see the lips 
of tough elderly women in musquash coats taking tea at McVitie's, enunciating this word of final justification. I can see the exact gesture of head and chin and gleam of the eye that accompany it. The sound was roughly, nevertheless, <laughs> and the emphasis was a heartfelt one. I believe myself to be fairly indoctrinated by the habit of thought which calls for this word. In fact, I approve of the ceremonious accumulation of weather forecasts and barometer readings that pronounce for a fine day before letting rip on the statement, and nevertheless, it's raining. <laughs> I find that much of my literary composition is based on the nevertheless idea. I act upon it. It was on the nevertheless principle that I turned Catholic. It is impossible to know how much one gets from one's early environment by way of a distinctive character or whether for better or worse. I think the puritanical strain of the Edinburgh ethos is inescapable, but this is not necessarily a bad thing. In the south of England, the puritanical virtues tend to be regarded as quaint eccentricities industriousness, for instance, or a horror of debt. A polite reticence about sex is often mistaken for repression. On the other hand, spiritual joy does not come in an easy, consistent flow to the puritanically nurtured soul. Myself, I have had to put up a psychological fight for my spiritual joy. Thank you very much. As the First Minister uh, mentioned, Muriel, in her own mind, was a poet before anything else. Even as a 10-year-old, she was taking great poems by world-class poets and actually trying to improve them. <laughs> as an adult, she always had what she would say was a poem on the go, and she once had her handbag stolen and was much less bothered about the missing wallet than the fact that there was a half-written poem in it which she could no longer remember. It was gone forever. Anyway, to remind us about um, her fantastic poetry, um, Leslie Hart is going to read one of her best-loved poems, Going Up to Sotheby's. This was the wine. It stained the top of the page when she knocked over the glass accidentally. A pity, she said, to lose that drop, for the wine was a treat. Here's a coffee cup ring and another. He preferred coffee to tea. Some pages rewritten entirely, scored through, cancelled over and over on this, his most important manuscript. That winter, they took a croft in Perthshire, living on oats and rabbits, bought for a few pens from the madman. The children thrived, and she got them to school daily, mostly by trudge. He was glad to get the children out of the way, but always felt cold while working on his book. This is his most important manuscript, completed 1929. Children, go and play outside. Your father's trying to work, but keep away from the madman's house. He looked up from his book. There's nothing wrong with the madman which was true. 
She typed out the chapters in the afternoons. He looked happily at her. He worked best late at night. Aren't you coming to bed? I often wonder, are you married to me or to your bloody book? A smudge on the page, still sticky after all these years. Something greasy on the last page. This is that manuscript, finished in the late spring, crossed out, dog-eared. This, this original, passed through several literary hands, while the pages she had typed were at the publishers. One personage has marked a passage with red ink, has written in the margin, are you sure? Five publishers rejected it in spite of recommendations. The sixth decided to risk his pounds sterling down the drain for the sake of prestige. The author was a difficult customer. However, they got the book published at last. Her parents looked after the children while the couple went to France for a short trip. This bundle of paper, the original manuscript, went into a fibre trunk, got damp on it, got mouldy and furled. It took 15 more years for him to make his reputation, by which time the children had grown up. Agnes is a secretary at the BBC, Leo is a teacher. The author died in 48, his wife in 68. Agnes and Leo married and begat. And now the grandchildren are selling the manuscript. Bound and proud, documented and glossed by scholars of the land, smoothed out and precious, these leaves of paper are going up to Sotheby's. The wine-stained, stew-stained and mould-smelly papers are going up to Sotheby's. They occupy the front seat of the Renault beside the driver. They are a national event. They are going up to make their fortune at last, which once were so humble, tattered, and so truly working class. Muriel's novels were all essentially comic, but A Far Cry from Kensington is unusual. It's not just funny, but it's also a revenge novel, apart from her fantastic, larger-than-life heroine, Mrs. Hawkins. The most memorable character is the creepy and sinister Hector Bartlett, who's a ferocious caricature of her ex-lover, Derek Stanford. Um, Maureen Beattie's going to read a short extract from this mischievous, sparkling novel. Maureen. At this point, the man whom I came to call the pisseur de copie enters my story. I forget which one of the French symbolist writers of the late 19th century denounced a hack writer as a urinator of journalistic copy in the phrase pisseur de copie, but the description remained in my mind and I attached it to a great many of the writers who hung around or wanted to meet Martin York. And finally, I attached it for life to one man alone, Hector Bartlett. The term 
upper class these days meant those days meant more than it does now. Hector Bartlett claimed at every opportunity, both directly and by implication, to be upper class, to the effect that I presumed him to be rather low-born. In fact, I was right, and I wasn't alone in my suppositions. He used to waylay me in Green Park on my way to work or on my way home. Occasionally, this amused me, for I might egg him on to show off his social superiority and not less the superior learning that he claimed, for he knew the titles of all the right books, the names of the authors, but it amounted to nothing. He had read very little. What he wanted from me was an introduction to Martin York and through him to his uncle, a film producer. Pisseur de Copie, Hector Bartlett, seemed to me vomited literary matter. He urinated it, he sweated it, he excreted it. Mrs. Hawkins, I take incalculable pains with my prose style. He did indeed. The pains showed. His <laughs> writings writhed and ached with twists and turns and tergiversations, inept words, fanciful repetitions, far-fetched verbosity, and long Latin-based words. I became aware one morning that his meeting me in Green Park on my way to the office was not by chance. He'd met me once too often. It was a clear day in June, and that it was a Monday, I know, from the fact that I was thinking with a happiness, new to me for many years, of young Isabel's daddy, to whom she telephoned from her room in our boarding house every night, and whom I had met in church the day before. It was an Anglo-Catholic church in Queensgate. As I stood for the Kyrie eleison, I noticed Isabel with an older man two rows in front, I assumed it was her father, and so it proved to be when we came out of church and Isabel introduced him. Hugh Lederer. I had thought for the first time for the many years of my widowhood when I had seen him with Isabel to the sweet music of the Kyrie. Oh, there's an attractive man. And now, crossing Green Park on this fresh Monday morning in June, the Kyrie sang in my head. And the meeting in church and the unpremeditated lunch to follow and the rest of the sweet Sunday afternoon retold itself to my mind. It was no pleasure at all to see Hector Bartlett hovering in my path. I didn't feel in the mood to humour him that morning. He'd seen me approaching before I had seen him and now he stood by a bench affecting to wonder whether to sit down on it. He stood there at 9.15 in the morning, the last person I wanted to enter into my sensations just then, but emphatically determined to do so. Red hair en brosse, brown corduroy trousers, tweed coat with leather patches on the sleeves, a yellow tie and a green checked shirt. This was gaudy for those days, and Hector Bartlett was always dressed in bright colours. He was tall, with a pronounced stoop of the shoulders, which made him seem older than he was. I imagine at that time he would be in his mid-thirties. His face was round with a second fat chin. He had a small but full baby mouth, as if forever asking to suck a dummy tit. 
On the path, walking in front of me, was a young couple with their arms affectionately round each other's waists. They looked as if they were on their way to work, probably in the same office, for this was the hour of office workers. When they passed the park bench around which Hector Bartlett had been hovering, I saw that he had sat down. He was waiting for me and now rose to meet me. Good morning, Mrs. Hawkins. What a pleasant surprise. He indicated the two lovers who had passed. Dalliance, he said. I don't know what got into me. For I said, not to myself as usual, but out loud, Pisseur de Gopie! Poor Hector Bartlett. <laughs> Poor Derek Sanford. Um, when I uh, got to know Muriel Spark, she was living in Tuscany, and it was in Tuscany she spent the last 30 years of her life in a huge, rambling 14th century rectory that she shared with her friend Penelope Jardine. And at the time I first got to know her, five cats and two dogs. And when she asked me to look after the house, she did neglect to mention these cats and dogs. Um, and uh, I realized what an onerous business keeping pets is, and I've vowed never to have any uh, in future. <laughs> to evoke those days in Tuscany, uh, Anne Kidd is going to read from an essay uh, that Muriel wrote about her time there. It was by chance, not choice, that I came to live in Tuscany to spend several months of the year at the house of a friend in the olive groves between Arezzo and Siena. So that I have never been properly on tour in Tuscany. It's a place where I work and live, visit friends, or go for a special reason to hear a concert, look at a picture or a building, or a square, or to eat at a newly discovered trattoria coming upon a small hill town or an old parish church on the way. Although Florence is not far away, it is another world from Tuscany. Florence is Florentine, the same with Siena and its glories. It is Sienese. It isn't necessarily the great and famous beauty spots that we fall in love with. As with people, so with places. Love is unforeseen, and we can find ourselves affectionately attached to the minor and the less obvious. I don't have an art historian's response to places. I can discern and admire a late Renaissance gate, a medieval street, a Romanesque church, or an Etruscan wall. But my first thoughts are for the warmth of the stone, the bright yellow broom covering the hillsides in early summer, the clouds when they look like a 15th century painting with a chariot or a saint zooming up into them. I notice the light and shade on buildings grouped on a hilltop, the rich skin colors and the shapes of people around me. <laughs> I love to watch people, to sit on a trattoria, listening in to their talk, imagining the rest and to take country roads lined with woods of pine, ilex, 
and forest oak chestnut. Nearly every evening I go somewhere in the countryside. Early summer is good. August is generally hot in Tuscany, but the autumn up to Christmas is comfortable. For people too busy to cook, as I am, it is easy to eat out all through the year. Arezzo is the biggest town to the spot where I spend part of my life. The remains of the original walls are Etruscan. It has a number of notable medieval and Renaissance churches and palazzi, and much of the town is modern. The overwhelming attractions of the city are the abundant frescoes of Piera della Francesca. In the church of Francesca are the frescoes depicting those biblical subjects which made church going such a wonderful picture show for the faithful. I often think as I look at them, how fortunate it is for us that so few people could read in those days and were obligingly informed by these wonderful stories in pictures. Even closer to my second home are the two hill towns I visit most for practical purposes of shopping and eating out. At Monte San Savino, for several years, I used to be invited with a friend to lunch every Thursday at the home of an elderly signora of that place. She was in her 80s and had wonderful and terrible stories to tell as we made our leisurely way through Tuscan rarities, cunningly prepared with the herbs and flavorings she knew were the right ones. Thrilling and terrible were her stories. The Germans had taken her villa during the war. It stands high on the hillside, but her house at the time I knew her was in the piazza. The Germans had shot her 19-year-old son. A street bears his name. She herself, with her daughter, had been put on a track bound for a train connection to the dreaded Germany. But one of the officers on guard, noted for his rigid toughness, nevertheless put them off in the countryside before they got to Florence on the basis of mutual love and knowledge of music. Love stories, escape stories, stories of war and occupations, of her youth, provincial balls, visits to the opera. Those Sunday lunches were unforgettable. After lunch, our friend Carolina would play the piano and sing romantic songs from the turn of the century. My favorite was called Tormento, which she rendered with her whole heart. <laughs> when she returned the visit, she'd bring with her those things befitting a day in the country. These were embroidery, her sketchbook, and poems or by Leopardi. Carolina died on her 90th birthday. She seemed to sum up my Tuscan experience. A whole people, the product of civilized times past, the product of the dramatic landscape. The Tuscans are also the progenitor of what one finds there. It is this spirit of endurance and rejoicing in the goodness of life 
which inspire the architecture, the paintings, the churches, and those ancient cultures of olive groves and vineyards, which are the essence of Tuscany. <laughs> we're, we're nearing the end of our evening. Um, Muriel's last novel, the last of our 22 novels, was called The Finishing School, aptly. And she set it in a creative writing school in Switzerland. Uh, she was 86 when she published this novel, and it says very much uh, what she thought about the act of writing herself. And to read a short extract from it is Rosemary. It was Roland's creative writing class, which he sometimes, like today, worked in with a poetry session. He had prepared a short lecture, which he read from his book of observations. Art is an act of daring, said Roland. A marriage that can survive the ruthlessness of art is one of sacrifice on the part of the non-artist partner. If both practice the same art, you should know that one of them will invariably be inferior to the other. If, in the course of an author's preparing a book, his family suffers a blow or a tragedy, the book could easily come to ruin in the ensuing domestic anguish and muddle. The average author could no doubt finish the book, but not well. However, the dedicated author might seem callous, not easily shattered, tough. Hence the reputation of artists in all fields for ruthless, cold detachment. Too bad. About this sort of accusation, the true artist is uncaring. The true artist is almost unaware of other people's cares and distractions. This applies to either sex. Once you have written the end to a book, it is yours, not only until death do you part, but for all eternity. Translators and adapters come and go, but they can't lay claim to the authorship of a work that is yours. Remember this if you ever take up the literary profession, as you all seem very keen to do. A lot of talk goes on about ideas. I heard a popular singer at an arts festival giving vent to his ideas about ideas. What was wanted, he said, were ideas, not just skill with words. Yet words are ideas. The great gospel according to St. John opens, in the beginning was the word. Well, kind of finally, uh, in, in 2003, I spent a week in Prague uh, with Muriel, where she had been invited by the British Council and it was a pretty eccentric week, one way or another. Uh, we went to a bookshop where she'd been asked to give a reading, but her Czech publishers had forgotten that it was the week of the Frankfurt Book Fair, and they'd just disappeared wholesale to Frankfurt. And three people turned up for the book reading in this Czech uh, bookshop, and um, Muriel didn't seem to be at all concerned. She just read on. One of the people in the audience, one of the three people in the audience, was a tinker who had attached to his clothing cutlery, knives, forks, spoons, and any time he moved, he jangled. Anyway, one night after we'd been to a concert, we had a good meal, and I poured wine liberally uh, into Muriel's glass. I said that at the age of 85, it was time she came back to Edinburgh and she appeared at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. 
And she must have been in a very good mood because she said, okay, in that slightly exasperated voice, okay, I'll do that. And all I said was, well, don't wake up in the morning and tell me you've changed your mind. Well, what we're going to hear now is a short excerpt, a reading from her at the Edinburgh Book Festival in 2004, two years before she died. And we can hear it very shortly. These are pictures taken, by the way, at the book festival. Thank you all very much for coming here. Um, I hope you're not going to be disappointed because I'm going to read you um, an extract from a book you already know, which is The Pride of Miss Jean Brodie. She is very much associated with Edinburgh. And um, it's, for me, it's wonderful to be back here. It's always good to come back. I spent the first 19 years of my life in Edinburgh. And my father was born here. And I very much belong. And so I'm very, very happy and very proud of the welcome you've given me. Now I'm going to read you um, what we've chosen is a lesson in the grounds of the school where Miss Brodie taught. Often that sunny autumn, when the weather permitted, the small girls took their lessons seated on three benches arranged about the elm. Hold up your books, said Miss Brodie quite often that autumn. Prop them up in your hands in case of intruders. If there are, are any intruders, we are doing our history lesson, our poetry, English grammar. The small girls held up their books with their eyes on, not on them, but on Miss Brodie. Meantime, I will tell you about my last summer holiday in Egypt. I will tell you about the care of the skin and of the hands. About the Frenchman I met in the train to Biarritz. And I must tell you about the Italian paintings I saw. Who is the greatest Italian painter? Leonardo da Vinci, Miss Brody. That is incorrect. The answer is Giotto. He is my favorite. <laughs> Some days it seemed to Sandy that Miss Brodie's chest was flat, no bulges at all, but straight as her back. On other days, her chest was breast-shaped and large, very noticeable, something for Sandy to sit and peer at through her tiny eyes while Miss Brodie, on a day of lessons indoors, stood erect, with her brown head held high, staring out of the window like Joan of Arc as she spoke. I have frequently told you, and the holidays just past have convinced me, that my prime has truly begun. One's prime is elusive. You little girls, when you grow up, must be on the alert to recognize your prime at whatever time of your life it may occur. You must then live it to the full.
And now Ellen Taylor has asked me to read you a poem which is of my childhood too. Although I didn't write it in my childhood, it is at a time when we used to play, play children's games. And um, we'd play this with our skipping rope or we'd count uh, who was out and who was in with this litany. It's called Litany of Time Past. What's today? Hoops today. What's yesterday? Tops yesterday. What's tomorrow? Diablo. Moon and planets come out to play. The bare bold, the sun spun. See the devil on sticks run. Today, tomorrow, and yesterday. What's hope? Skipping rope. What's charity? Salty peppery. What's faith? Edinburgh, Leith, Portobello, Musselburgh, and O'Keefe. <laughs> Out you are, in you are, mustard vinegar. So that sends a shiver down my spine. It's just so amazing to hear her. So it only leaves for us now to say quite a lot of thank yous um, for making this evening possible. And I'm just going to read very carefully. And if I've missed anybody out, I really apologize. My memory's dreadful. But thank you to the Usher Hall staff, to Creative Scotland, especially Jenny Niven, to the Edinburgh International Book Festival team, Nick Barley, Roland Gulliver, Janet Smith, and Yanis Kalkunas to Jan Rutherford and her fabulous team at Berlin Publishing, to the Royal Lyceum Theatre Company, David Gregg, Alex McGowan, Shorach McPherson, and Harriet Mackey, and to all those who have participated, including First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, Alexander McCall-Smith, Ian Rankin, actors Moyo Akande, Maureen Beatty, Peter Forbes, Ryan Fletcher, Leslie Hart, Anne Kidd, and Gabriel Quigley. Thanks also to the small but perfectly formed Muriel Spark Society. And above all, thanks to everyone for actually coming out and showing your appreciation for Muriel Spark, who really was the creme de la creme. Thank you very much. Um, so, um, uh, 2018 is the year of sparks, so this is just the beginning, and I think she will be pretty unavoidable as you go through this evening into the night, as she says at the end of the finishing school. There are symposiums, exhibitions, rescreenings of her films, of her books. Uh, there will be events at book festivals. There will be new books coming out as well. There are books on sale apparently here tonight, I think in the foyer and somewhere around here. Um, as uh, was said earlier, the 22 novels are all being republished in hardback with bespoke introductions by some of our best writers, including Alexander McCall-Smith and Ian Rankin, and they're available for a mere 9.99. Um, it's almost a giveaway. Um, <laughs> so if you don't want to go to any events, you can at least read Muriel. Thank you very much for all for coming. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you.